this podcast deals with true crime. I will be speaking frankly and openly about crimes such as murder, rape, and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. It is said that the best way to get away with murder is to kill someone that you have no connection to. It's when a victim can be traced back to you that you get caught. That is why serial killers are so hard to apprehend. Also, it is said that you shouldn't kill in the same area. Sticking to one geographic area makes killings more apparent. That is why serial killers who travel to kill are even harder to apprehend. So let's say that you were going to be a serial killer and you wanted to stick to the rules of not killing anyone connected to you and killing in the same geographic area. What would be the best way to accomplish this goal? Well, you would need to be able to travel freely and pick victims that would not be immediately missed. Also, you need someplace safe and secure to kill. What would be the best way to incorporate all of these criteria so that you could kill undetected? Well, some would say having my profession, a truck driver, would be ideal for making such a killer. As a truck driver, you travel all over the country. In my first year, I went through 17 states. By year two, I had visited every state east of the Mississippi. Also, it allows you to kill victims who have no connection to you. Prostitution at truck stops is a widely known occurrence. Also, on long trips, it is easy to come across hitchhikers. Having a secluded and safe place to kill is easy if you're a long-haul trucker who has a sleeper cab. Some of them can be as big as a small apartment. Needless to say, these facts have allowed for several serial killers to be truck drivers by trade as well as the FBI to believe that there are several as yet unidentified serial killer truckers. In this episode, we will discuss one such serial killer, a man who over the course of 15 years was suspected of killing over 50 victims, who was only apprehended because of sheer luck. Tonight on the True Crime Truckers podcast, I bring you the case of Robert Ben Rhodes, the truck stop killer.
Robert Ben Rhodes was born in Council Bluff, Iowa, on November 22, 1945. In the early years of his life, Rhodes was raised by his mother alone because his father was a soldier in the U.S. Army and was stationed in West Germany. Though his father returned from overseas duty when Robert was still a child attending elementary school, after his father was discharged from the military, he found work as a firefighter. Robert's early life was fairly normal, aside from unspecified social problems in his formative years. He was an active participant in the extracurricular activities of his attended schools and involved himself with gridiron football, wrestling, choir, and French club. Rhodes' criminal involvement in his high school years were only notable for an arrest at the age of 16 in 1961 for tampering with a vehicle, along with an arrest for publicly fighting at the age of 17 in 1962. After graduating Monticello High School in Monticello in 1964, he joined the Marine Corps. That same year, his father was arrested for molesting a 12-year-old girl and subsequently committed suicide while awaiting trial. A few years later, in 1967 or 1968, Rhodes was dishonorably discharged from the military for his involvement in a robbery. After his dishonorable discharge from the Marines sometime in late 1960s, he attended college but dropped out. He later attempted to join law enforcement agency, but was likely rejected for his past dishonorable discharge from the Marines. Throughout the 1970s and 80s, he was married three times, having a son with his first wife. For jobs and careers, he worked in stores, supermarkets, warehouses, and restaurants. Eventually, he became a long-haul trucker. His personal interests and hobbies included involving himself in BDSM scene during the 1980s. It was also during this decade that he allegedly verbally, physically, and sexually abused his third wife, Deborah Rhodes. Although he is suspected of over 50 murders, Rhodes was only positively linked to four and only convicted of two. We will go over those murders since they are the ones we know about for sure. On February 5, 1990, 14-year-old Regina K. Walters and her boyfriend, 18-year-old Ricky Lee Jones, ran away from home in Pasadena, Texas. Regina's mother, Carolyn Walters, worked late hours. Regina's mother and father were divorced at the time Regina was staying with her mother. Her mother got home late in the evening on February 5th to find that Regina was not home and had left a note saying where she was. Carolyn called Regina's friends as well as her father who was in Houston, none of which had seen or heard from Regina. 
Carolyn reported Regina as missing the next morning to the Pasadena, Texas police. She spoke with detectives from the juvenile section, providing the officers with a description of Regina as well as a photograph. Regina was about five foot tall, 95 pounds, and had long curly brown hair. Carolyn told the detectives that Regina had had an argument two days previous and that Regina had a history of running away but always returned, although she had a feeling that this time was different. Several days passed, and Regina would normally call her mom when she would leave home and let her mother know that she was okay and that she was just out. She would be back when she was ready to come home, and she had not done that. Detectives learned that Ricky Lee Jones was wanted in connection with an auto theft ring and had initially believed that Ricky and Regina had fled to Mexico in order to escape arrest. Police interviewed Jerry Walters, Regina's father. He told police that on the evening of March 17, 1990, he received a mysterious phone call at his residence. The man on the other end asked Jerry if he was Regina's father. When he told the caller yes, the caller said, I know where you can find Regina. He said that Regina could be found in the loft of a barn and that he made some changes to her. The caller said that he had cut Regina's hair. When Regina's father asked if she was dead or alive, the caller hung up the phone. On that same date, Regina's mother, Carolyn, also received a phone call. The caller asked Carolyn to meet him at 6.30 the next morning at a local convenience store and that he had information about Regina's disappearance. The police set up a surveillance at the meeting place. Carolyn waited for hours, but the caller never showed up. At that particular time, it was obvious that we were becoming very concerned about Regina's whereabouts uh, with the phone calls and, and the uh, information that we received. We were pretty sure that there was going to be foul play involved. October of 1990 in Bonn, Illinois, a farmer was getting ready to burn down an abandoned barn on his property. He went inside to make sure that he had gotten everything out of the barn before setting it on fire. As he made his way into the loft, he noticed what appeared to be bones. As he got a closer, he noticed what appeared to be a human skeleton. He immediately contacted the police. I had received a call from the local sheriff's office in Bonn County, Illinois and they had instructed me that they had found a body in a rural setting uh, near the interstate, Interstate 70, which is a major interstate that travels through Bond County. Illinois State Police forensic authorities did a thorough investigation of the crime scene. No clothing was found on or near the body. They recovered a single white thread close to the body that was too new to have been in the barn for long. They found bailing wire wrapped around the corpse's neck. They also found similar wire inside the loft of the barn. 
Due to the size of the skeleton, they determined it to be that of a teenage child. They determined that the body was that of a female, approximately 95 to 110 pounds, and they were able to determine that the hair had recently been cut. Mark was able to determine that it was a, a young female between the ages of 14 to 16, approximate weight, which was 90 to 110 pounds. There was indication that her hair had been cut. Um, the distal ends had begun to grow again, but uh, the forensics had told us that uh, it was recent. Cause of death was strangulation. The killer had twisted the bailing wire 16 times, twisting it so tight that it nearly decapitated the victim. They placed the time of death at nearly a year earlier. The white fiber near the body was concluded to be more than likely from a towel. Illinois State Police set out a teletype to around 100 police departments with missing person cases matching the description of the victim who went missing in the spring of 1990. Pasadena, Texas Police Department was one of those who were sent the teletype. Detectives working the case contacted the Illinois State Police. When I asked her if the body was found in a barn, she immediately transferred me to the sheriff, in which I started talking to him right away. And it was immediately discovered that it was possibly Regina. And so we immediately jumped on that and started sending the teletypes back and forth. Pasadena detectives also asked if the girl's hair was cut. Illinois State Police confirmed that the victim's hair had in fact been cut, matching the mysterious caller's description. Dental records were sent to Illinois and were found to be a match. The body was identified as that of 14-year-old Regina Walters. We sent a copy of dental x-rays to Greenville, Illinois, to the sheriff's office, and those dental x-rays were matched with the body that was discovered there, and it was confirmed to be Regina's body. The question now was, where was Ricky Lee Jones? When investigators contacted Ricky Lee Jones's family, they told police that he had not been around for over a year. They believed that he had run off or was in jail. And I tried to go in and contact every person that had any involvement with uh, Ricky or Regina. I wanted to see if there was anything that they mentioned that would have proven valuable to uh, locating Ricky. The FBI came up with the profile of Regina's killer. They determined that Ricky Lee Jones was more than likely not the killer. The FBI's profile was that of an older white male, someone who was a truck driver or traveling salesman, someone who had a reason to be traveling across the country. He was a sadist, evident in the slow, painful way that he killed Regina, as well as cutting off her hair. They determined that the killer would have also had other offenses as well. If Ricky Lee Jones had murdered Regina, he would have done it in a fit of anger, and that would have been reflected in the crime scene, and you didn't see that. It was a very controlled, purposeful crime scene. You got the impression that this is an older person, a white male, a traveler, a truck driver, traveling salesman, somebody that had a reason to be across the country. In Marshall, Texas, 200 miles north of Houston, partial skeletal remains of a young man were found washed up on a creek bed. The skull had a bullet wound from a small caliber weapon. The remains were later identified as those of 18-year-old Ricky Lee Jones. 
it seemed as if detectives had run out of leads and that the case would soon grow cold. April 1st, 1990, Officer Mike Miller of the Arizona Highway Patrol found a truck at the side of I-10 with its hazard lights on. When he investigated inside the cab, he discovered a nude woman, handcuffed and screaming. There was also a male present who identified himself as Robert Ben Rhodes, the driver of the truck. And I asked him, I said, what's going on? And he said, nothing, officer, we're doing just fine. He said, just no problem. Uh, I, I've got a, a gun in my back pocket. And he motioned to his back pocket and then put his hands up on the side of his truck. This was kind of an unusual situation. And I could still hear the woman screaming on the inside of the truck. After failing to talk his way out of the situation, Rhodes was handcuffed and put in the back of the officer's squad car. Rhodes was arrested and charged with aggravated assault, sexual assault, and unlawful imprisonment. Inside Rhodes' truck, they found a suitcase with implements of torture and bondage, as well as a camera and several hairs that didn't match the woman that they found in the cab of his truck. Robert Rhodes had a, what I refer to as a rape kit in his truck. He had all kinds of paraphernalia. He had uh, long sticks with clips on the end where he would draw and quarter his victims. He had whips. And just based on that, I, I, I knew Robert Rhodes was a a predator. The 27-year-old female found in Rhodes' truck said that she had been picked up an hour earlier at a truck stop near Phoenix. When she had fallen asleep in the sleeper cab, Rhodes climbed back, assaulted her, and chained her to the wall. He told her that his nickname was quote-unquote whips and chains and that he had been doing this for 15 years. Police photographed her injuries. She had told them that she tried to fight off her attacker and that she managed to bite him on his left shoulder. She agreed to press charges for assault and kidnapping. However, detectives believed that she may be a problematic witness. She would uh, talk about this reality, this terrible assault that she endured, and then periodically she would revert back to a story about her traveling across the country to, to see the president. She told me she wanted to give the president a microchip and she talked about the underground prison where no one escapes from. And all this time my heart was sinking because I, I needed Kathleen to tell a, a very lucid story about this, the horrible incident that happened to her. When police interviewed Rhodes, 
He claimed that the woman was quote-unquote crazy. He said that she was a quote-unquote lot lizard, a term truckers use for prostitutes. He claimed that the woman had solicited him, saying that she liked rough sex, although they never actually engaged in sex. He refused to give any information about what actually had occurred inside the sleeper cab of his truck. Police photographed the wound on Rhodes' left shoulder, which appeared to be a bite mark. Rhodes claimed that he had sustained the injury while loading up his truck. She told me she tried to bite his throat, but he moved and she bit him on the left upper shoulder. And we, we've got a photo of her bite mark, and her story completely corroborated, you know, what happened in that, in that sleeper cab. The fact that he had told the victim that he had been doing this for 15 years made Detective Rick Barnhart enter the profile into the NCIC to see if he could find any similar crimes. After further investigation, Barnhart was able to make a connection to a Houston case of kidnapping in which the victim had escaped. I was contacted by Sergeant Bomar. His was the case where the young lady escaped. I was fairly positive that Robert Rhodes was at least a serial rapist. I had suspicions that he might, he might be a murderer. The 18-year-old victim was a drifter. When Rhodes was detained, the victim declined to press charges, feeling that she would not be believed despite extensive evidence. In her statement to police, she said that, quote, I don't see any good in filing charges. It's just going to be my word against his. If there was any evidence, I would file. I would file charges and sue him, unquote. It was later asserted that she was fearful of Rhodes after enduring two weeks in his truck. In executing a search warrant for Rhodes' home, police found photos of a new teenager who was later identified as Walters, whose body was found in October of 1990. Also present were photos of Candace Walsh, whose body was also discovered that October. We know that uh, serial rapists often keep souvenirs from their victims, uh, whether it be a piece of clothing or a piece of jewelry or whatever. When we went in, we found bondage paraphernalia, we found chains, we found handcuffs, uh, we found a rack that someone could be tied to, we found a lot of women's jewelry. Candace Walsh and her husband, Douglas Zaskowski, were hitchhiking in January of 1990 when Rhodes picked them up in his truck while on a long-haul journey. He immediately killed Zaskowski and dumped his body in Sutton County, Texas, where it was later found. He was not identified until 1992. Walsh he kept for over a week. During this time, he tortured and raped her multiple times before dumping her body in Millard County, Utah. In 1994, Rhodes was convicted of first-degree murder of Regina K. Walters and sentenced to life without parole at Menard Correctional Center in Chester, Illinois. He was extradited to Utah in 2005 to be tried for the deaths of Candace Walsh and Z Douglas Zaskowski. However, in accordance with the victim's family's request, the charges were dropped in 2006, and he was returned to prison. Rhodes later was extradited to Texas for the murders of Walter and Jones, where Rhodes, in exchange for dropping the death penalty, pled guilty to their deaths and received a second life sentence. 
his trips from Houston to Baltimore to LA and back in a matter of four to five days at a time could just give you an idea of how many people he has access to in remote locations that he could abuse these people and dispose of them. Despite his other convictions in Texas, he continues to serve his life without parole sentence at the Menard Correctional Center in Chester, Illinois. Robert Ben Rhodes is what is known as a sexually sadistic serial killer. Sexual sadism disorder is a condition of experiencing sexual arousal in response to the extreme pain, suffering, or humiliation of others. Several other terms have been used to describe the condition, and the condition may overlap with other conditions that involve inflicting pain. It is distinct from situations in which consenting individuals use mild or simulated pain or humiliation for sexual excitement. Although only ever linked to four murders and only being convicted of two murders, I think it is highly likely that he is responsible for many more murders. There are somewhere around 50 unsolved murders that Rhodes is a suspect in because of the MO of the crimes. Also, his profession of a long-haul truck driver allowed him to abduct from one state and murder and dispose of a victim in another state. While I am glad that Rhodes is behind bars, I don't believe that we will ever know how many victims he truly had during his reign of terror. You can contact me at truecrimetruckerspodcast at gmail.com or join the Facebook group at truecrimetruckerspodcast. You can now also follow me on Instagram at michael.prit81. Thanks for listening. I will return in two weeks with another case to present. Until then, stay safe.